and we'll uh, we'll get rolling. Um, Alexandra Karihakis is here with me today. We are going to discuss some points from her book, Erotic Intelligence. And I'm very excited to have her with us today on the podcast so that we can dive into aspects of the transformation and the transition from addictive sex to healthy sex in some sticking points for a lot of people. So thank you for being here with me today, Alexandra. Thank you for having me, Trish. Um, I'm really excited to kind of delve into some of these, you know, kind of bigger concepts, but they're concepts that are really important to people. And I know it's difficult for them to figure them out on this journey. And one starting point, and you outline it in a chart form in your book, but one starting point would be in your own words, talking about what addictive sex is versus healthy sex. Well, I think that's a good question because people often ask, well, what is healthy sex? And I really think that's something that people have to define for themselves ultimately. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I think about addictive sex, I think about um, that which is rigid. There's a rigidness to it. Um, it's sort of rote. Uh, the person is running an arousal template over and over and over again. So and sometimes it cannot be very imaginative because it's really um, originating from shame. And when shame runs the show with sex, we have all kinds of problems. Uh, we're not free to um, really experience our sense of self during sex and explore kind of the nooks and crannies of our psyches and our bodies and um, experience pleasure because we're not taught that sex is about pleasure in our country. We're taught that sex is bad and there are all these things you shouldn't do. Don't do this and don't do that. Don't get pregnant. Don't get a disease. Don't do it before you get married. Um, In other words, it's kind of miserable and weird. Just don't do it. Um, (laughs) As opposed to it's a natural developmental task and it's an unbelievable gift that our bodies are designed in such a way to receive pleasure. Um, Addictive sex mm-hmm. is also, um, you know, it, it takes advantage of other people. It's, there's usury going on. And sometimes it's mutual usury. Like both mm-hmm. parties know that they're using each other to get off or mm-hmm. get lost or what have you. And healthy sex is much more, um, has a mutuality to it. Um, there's certainly consent. And that doesn't mean there's not consent when people are in their addictions or their compulsions. But um, it's much more respectful. I guess you could say that. Yeah. Those are yeah. two aspects. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I love that because thinking about rigidity, I think that is, um, you know, a good point to anchor in and in on because so many people have difficulty giving up that rigidity. They're so stuck in their old ways. They keep using those neural pathways over and over. And that's really kind of where, where I wanted to go with this thought process is that, you know, and actually someone said to me the other day, and this really has been in the back of my mind, knowing that I was going to talk with you, but what he said was like, how can I be with my partner and try to turn it on in this new way that I don't even fully know how to do when I'm spending a lot of my time and energy trying not to think of the old ways and trying not to want to go back to the old ways. 
And that rigidity is exactly what you're talking about. Like the old way is that arousal template. One interesting thing, maybe I could pass it back to you is thinking about how pornography consumption in particular can change a person's arousal template. And many times it can get defined by what they've been watching or genres or acts or body parts, what they've been consuming for a long time, that becomes their main arousal template, which many times isn't healthy. Do you have thoughts on how people can uh, either, you know, reduce that unhealthy arousal template or shift it into a healthy version? Yeah, I think um, you, there were a lot of different <laughs> topics you hit on just now. Um, <clears throat> you know, there's a saying in Zen that before enlightenment, a mountain is a mountain and a river is a river. And after enlightenment, a mountain is a mountain and a river is a river. Yeah. <laughs> and so in sex addiction or sexual compulsivity, people are engaging in sexual behaviors that arouse them. They turn them on. And one of the problems with you know, this addictive versus healthy is that addicts seek intensity over intimacy and they confuse the two. Mm -hmm. But if somebody likes, let's just take something that's fairly basic and average today, which is oral sex. Mm -hmm. If someone likes oral sex in their addiction, they're still going to like it after they're in recovery. And that doesn't make it wrong. It has to do with how connected um, each one of us are to our own bodies, to our pleasure centers, and to our partners when we're engaging in sex. Because sex can be um, extremely dissociative on one end, mm -hmm. or and you know, therefore it's about getting off and more kind of pornographic, mm -hmm. or it can be highly erotic and relational on the other end. And it doesn't mean it's any less sweaty, down and dirty, <laughs> or arousing. It's just a different configuration. So I think the problem that people have that are what I call classic sex addicts mm -hmm. is that they are traumatized people. They have relational trauma. Um, they are reenacting a lot of those patterns from early, early on. Mm -hmm. And it's what they know to do. And their brains and bodies are connected in that way because we are extremely automatic creatures. Our brains are automatic. Our bodies are. And so changing those patterns can be difficult and sometimes impossible. So it's not about changing what I like sexually. Like if somebody's, you know, gay and they're into a, the leather scene um, mm -hmm. and they're sexually compulsive, it doesn't mean when they're in recovery, they're not going to be into the leather scene. They will be. But how right, are they right. going to use that differently? How are they going to connect to themselves differently without being in this completely checked out space? Right, right. Yeah. And even yeah. that, that has thin slices to it. Definitely. Definitely. Um, yeah, that's, that's great. And I always try to help people think of how they can incorporate those arousal templates or, you know, acts, whatever they're into, into a healthy relationship. And many times their partners are not into it, or at least that's what they report. And that creates an issue in trying to do that. Do you have any thoughts in that? department? Well, um, my workbook, uh, Sexual Reflections, which just came out a couple of years ago, is expressly designed for this particular topic. What do I Beautiful. like sexually? What of it was I doing in my addiction? Um, what of it did I like? Mm -hmm. um, what of it is based in my trauma? Mm -hmm. And um, how do I talk to my partner about this in a constructive way? 
So that's really the the guts of that workbook, if you will. So I would turn people's um, attention towards that. It's called Sexual Reflections, and you can find it on Amazon. Yeah, beautiful. Um, and I think often, I think partners are often um, very, very tentative and not mm-hmm. trusting because they don't know what's what. And so until a solid relational foundation can be made, until there's been a formal disclosure and lots of conversation afterwards, that's not a one and done proposition. It's an ongoing conversation. So the partner can start to understand and make meaning and really honestly decide if he or she wants to stay in the relationship. Um, and I think that can be part of the partner's ambivalence is that about sex is that they don't really want to be in the relationship, but they're not really admitting that to themselves or they're staying because it's complicated with, you know, homes and children and families. So it really puts them in a very tight corner Um, Because many partners feel like they don't want to give their sexuality because they don't feel trusting of it. So this is more about um, the rebuilding of trust. Can it be rebuilt? And if it can be, it's very slow uh, going to build it before uh, people feel like they can be sexually free again. So that requires a lot of conversation and couple therapy and sex therapy for sure. Right. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Thank you. And uh, one of the chapters in your book is entitled Dance a New Dance. And, you know, I think that's kind of what you're talking about in terms of, you know, two people are dancing together and many times partners become hyposexual because of trauma, betrayal trauma, while in their partner's hypersexual and finding that meeting ground in the middle and being able to figure out what is in both of their arousal templates and how to build connection out of that and to combine them for a meaningful sexual experience. Um, Also, one thing that you talk about, which I think is really powerful in, in your book, is the concept of differentiation in terms of you know, figuring that out. And I think a lot of times partners don't know what their sexual arousal is. They haven't talked about it. They haven't discussed it with each other. Um, And the way you talk about it in the book is managing the tension and discomfort of the anxiety and the excitement within the sexual experience. And, you know, thinking of what you were just talking about in terms of the intensity that the addictive brain is going for and bring, being able to bring that back to connection in a healthy sexual experience. Do you have any thoughts that you can share on creating that differentiation for partners and then managing that tension and anxiety and sexual excitement? Well, it's no easy feat. I mean, differentiation is about really um, admitting some painful truth to oneself and not looking to our partner's to make us whole or okay or feel loved and wanted, um, but to really get quiet and clear about who am I and what do I want and do I want this relationship? And if I do, what do I want and need? Um, and how am I going to get really explicit and clear about that and what I will and won't do? And it's risky business because if I really take a stand for what's true for me, you might leave. And that's the gamble in differentiation, which is different than what we more classically call codependence, which is I'm just going to go along to get along, or I'm going to be agreeable 
so that you don't get angry or leave, or I'm going to have sex with you, even though I really don't want to, um, and then resent you for it when really I'm violating myself mm-hmm. because I really don't want to. Mm-hmm. And so that is a, a very um, different organization for some people. And it requires them to kind of be more mature and to grow themselves up sexually uh, by being explicit with themselves about what they want and like and need. Um, that's the first step. And then the second step is being able to communicate it to a partner without feeling shame or embarrassment. Mm-hmm. Um, and then being curious also, I think, about if your partner tells you they like something sexually or they want to try something, being curious about my own reaction if I think it's disgusting or deplorable or weird or <laughs> it makes me uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, instead of shaming my partner, getting curious about my reaction to it. Mm-hmm. Love that. That's great. Yeah, that's very helpful. Uh, thank you. That's great. So thinking about fantasy as it plays out in in sexuality for everybody, but especially when people are stuck in a hypersexual mode, fantasy really plays in. And if they've been consuming pornography for a long time, uh, having flashbacks or euphoric recall can enter into, you know, again, it's, it's one of those hurdles people have to get over when they're going from hypersexual and addictive sexuality towards healthy sexuality. Um, do you have a strategy or something you could offer people to get out of their heads in terms of that euphoric recall and pull themselves back into those present sexual experiences like you talked about in terms of getting into your body and experiencing whole body stimulation instead of just that intense brain stimulation? Well, I think this is a mindfulness practice. I think we're trying to change habits. These are adaptive strategies um, in the brain and the body. And as I said, we're super automatic and there are a lot of neuronal networks that are wired together here. So this is where the quote work comes in for people is to be vigilant about paying attention to what's going on internally for me right now. So most people track their partners to see if they're okay, to see if they're attractive enough or wanted or desired, and to get less interested in that and more interested in what's going on for me right now. Oh, some fantasy just fired off. And instead of going into shame about that or feeling dirty or bad or wrong or like you're not working a good enough program, it's about having compassion for yourself and saying, oh, there's that habit. Isn't that interesting? Mm -hmm. Um, I'm thinking about my affair partner, or I'm thinking about pornography right now when I'm with my partner. What if I slow down, take Mm -hmm. a breath, get present by evoking my five senses, like looking into my partner's eyes, touching his or her skin, smelling his or her hair? What does it feel like to be touching this body in this moment? Mm -hmm. Um, And slowing way down helps to reorient Um, our presence, our present awareness. So Mm -hmm. I think what's crucial is that people not beat themselves up about it or beat each other up about it. These are Mm -hmm. habits. They're (laughs) longstanding habits. It's about being curious about the habit and then seeing if you can intervene on it with what I think in the program they would call contrary action. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks. Yeah, that's great. Um, I love listening to you talk. You are uh, much of what I say all the time. You say in a very different way. And I think that's really helpful. Um, okay. What about the loaded, the loaded question? Everybody always wants to know how long it's going to take. Like, what's the time frame? If I start recovery today, when's my brain going to heal? When am I going to feel better? When are things going to come online? Do you have any thoughts in that direction? Yeah, my answer to that is it's up to you. It's up to how willing you are and how much attention you're going to put on your recovery. If you put as much attention on your recovery as you did on your addiction, this will go much faster. So, you know, people think they can go to therapy once a week or go to meeting here and there. And it requires, um, I think recovery, early recovery, the first year is like having a 20 hour a week job. (laughs) And if both parties don't understand that and they're not on board with it, it's not going to go well. Mm -hmm. It requires daily meetings, writing, reading, therapy, group therapy, making phone calls every day reading, you know, these kind of mindfulness practices that we're talking about, Mm -hmm. you know, it's like if you were walking your entire life in a fashion that was pigeon toed and your feet were turned in and your knees were hurting and your hips were hurting because of it, and you decided that you were going to straighten out your gait, that's going to take a lot of attention and work. It may take uh, corrective shoes. It may take getting orthotics. It may take physical therapy. Certainly when you're walking, you're going to have to be mindful about every step. You're probably going to have hip pain along the way because you're restructuring your biomechanical system, which is now patterned in this particular way. And it's completely doable, but it requires a vigilance. And that, I think, is a a good metaphor for what recovery requires. Yeah, I love it. The way I talk about it is staying engaged to evolve and that it's this is a personal development, a neuro optimization journey. And if you stay engaged in it and the more you engage, the faster it it moves along. But as long as you stay engaged, you continue to evolve and then you move towards the version of yourself that you want to create. Um, so yeah, I, that's, that's wonderful. Thank you. Um, okay. Evolution is painful. Also, it can be excruciatingly painful. Yeah. And and with the territory. Yeah. And recovery. You know, I, I half joke all the time that everybody should be in recovery because we all have, you know, family dysfunction and we have these patterns that we've created as coping mechanisms. Some you know, on a continuum of unhealthy to healthy and all different ways and flavors and magnitudes in that, you know, recovery is recovering our authentic self and then being able to vulnerably share that with somebody else. And in doing so, we become more invulnerable and we get more joy out of life. We still get pleasure because, you know, when people don't want to lose the pleasure that they've achieved through their addiction, But, you know, when you evolve, it is, and I love how you use the word quote unquote work because the work changes when you start doing it, at least for me, that's why I always use the word journey. It's work at the beginning. You know, you have to take that first step and that's the hardest one. And then the steps get easier. And at a certain point, you're enjoying the transformation that you've embarked upon. It doesn't mean you can stop and it doesn't mean, you know, you might be able to slow down, but you keep moving forward and, you know, this it's, it's a journey of evolution across our, our lives. 
Um, so yeah, uh, that's all good stuff. Um, how about one more question? And because I know you're busy and being respectful of your time, uh, and this might, again, maybe bring up a few different points. Everybody always wants to know about healthy masturbation. Nobody wants to give up the masturbation habit because it has provided so much, you know, physical and mental stimulation, but it can also be a slippery slope and can lead them back into those addictive processes. Do you have any suggestions or advice for people in terms of what they can do with masturbation in the short run, when it's safe or when, you know, it's a good idea to incorporate it if they should, you know, work with someone in their recovery to help them not slide back into addictive behaviors. Because as you know, for so many people who are on this journey, it can ebb and flow and, and slips and relapses and commitment levels can wax and wane and masturbation can be at the core of that. Any thoughts on that? Well, I think that's a very sticky wicket, so to speak. Um, <laughs> this is, uh, um, again, it's highly individualized. I have plenty of clients who um, or are in recovery who can masturbate and it was never a problem for them. They weren't compulsive. It wasn't their thing. They were having relationships outside of their primary relationship with other people. Other people that were much more compulsive with pornography mm-hmm. um, will decide that they can never masturbate again. And then there's a whole bell curve in between. Uh, so course. I think this is something that <clears throat> people really need to take up with their sponsors. Um, when they're clear about what their um, sobriety is going to look like. And after somebody's had a solid year of sobriety, meaning they're working a program, they've been abstinent. And especially if they're not having sex in their relationship, you you know, a a healthy uh, masturbation is a personal sex life. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, it's problematic to ask people to be in long-term marriages to be going three years where there's no sex in the marriage and no masturbation, that starts to feel quite colonizing to me and sort of sex negative, honestly. Oh, absolutely. I agree with you 100%. Right. And so it depends on whether we're talking about early recovery, um, middle stage, what's happening in the relationship. Um, are, are, if you are in a committed relationship, are you talking to your partner about, how often you're masturbating, like it's on your plan, you know, twice a week with no pornography. Um, Is your partner cool with it? Um, It it just has to be discussed again on a case-by-case basis with each person talking to their therapist and people in program and their partner to decide what is the safest, sanest thing for them to be doing. Yeah. And communication is so essential. And I don't know if you find this in your long practice of helping people, but communication between partners is, you know, talk about a sticky wicket, right? It's challenging because like, I know that many men who are in recovery from pornography will tell me that they feel like their wives or their partners are controlling them when they try to talk to them about these things. But that is a healthy recovery is staying in communication about mutual sexuality and personal sexuality. And then when their wives approach them, they're mad because they're being controlled. And, you know, again, you know, like you said, it can be early, middle or late, but 
it all becomes very challenging surrounding communication and the ability to grow up emotionally and increase that emotional Mm -hmm. maturity and be able to handle these difficult conversations, recognizing that they're not personally offensive, that they're solution oriented. And I know that becomes challenging because, you know, a lot of people are in relationships where they haven't had sex with their partner in a long time and their partner doesn't want them to masturbate, but there's no hope on the horizon in terms of when solution is going to be um, achieved or resolved. And so then masturbation becomes very, but for people who have a compulsive masturbation habit, they don't really want to get back into it, but they feel like they need to because of the lack of moving forward. Yeah, I mean, it just, that is a situation where, um, you know, that's the couple that really needs to be in couples therapy. Unfortunately, oftentimes they're not. Mm-hmm. Um, so they won't go to couples therapy. They won't have sex. They don't want their partner having sex with themselves. Um, and that's really not a healthy relationship. No, uh, those are people that have not moved forward in their recovery. They're stuck. Um, and they're also, there's a lot of self-deception there. They're staying for the wrong reasons, um, mostly because they don't know what else to do. But there's a lack of being proactive in a configuration like that. That can be really painful to watch. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, Well, did you have anything else you wanted to share before we wrap up? I think we hit all the sticky wickets. That's I saved them for you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Um, I think... um, Yeah, you had some other questions, but maybe we hit on everything. Yeah, I kind of integrated them. And I think we actually hit on on everything and in a really nice way, because, you know, I know that all of these are really broad concepts that you can't fully answer for any given person. But I also know that at least in the people that I'm trying to help with, with pornography, you know, addictions where they keep going back to porn, they can't figure out these relationship dynamics because they don't have the emotional capacity to, or they don't know how, and their partners aren't on board and nobody's moving forward. These are the biggest things that they want to know is like, how do I attempt to shift this? And, you know, recovery is a journey. And like you said, you know, a year of sobriety, people don't want to hear about a year of sobriety. They want, you know, Obviously, most people right. want they instant, want it now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. especially if well, you've been getting instant gratification I, for so long. Yeah, but I have to say, one of the things that's most gratifying about working with people in recovery is that we see change quickly. And a year is nothing. If you've been acting out for 15, 20 years, a year of your life is nothing to, you know, change the course of your life to moving towards you know, hitting your full potential and using all the energy you were using acting out to becoming a fully realized person. So people shouldn't be afraid of a year. It's yeah. really a blip in the scheme of things. Absolutely. And, you know, I, so I said, you and I use all the same language. Like I have, I've been a college professor for a long time and I've overextended the term fun uh, on many occasions, mm-hmm. but, you know, saying that it begins as work and it's so challenging, but then it does hit this level of, you're glad to be doing it, you know, and you're glad you're in it. You're so glad you're not stuck back in those patterns that you've been using for 10, 15, 20, you know, sometimes 40, 50 years. So, you know, that's when it becomes fun. And of course it's still, you know, challenging and you have to work at it, but you really are glad that you're in this recovery and you're so glad you're out of the old patterns. 
Um, and you're right. A year is, you know, just a blip on the radar when, when you can get to that commitment level. And every time something challenging comes towards you, you recognize it as opportunity. And I always try to encourage people like, you know, you get the opportunity to figure this out. And when you do, it's going to continue to move you forward. And, you know, self-actualization and reaching full potential is exactly the way that I think about it and no longer staying in survival mode and being able to thrive and, you know, get on purpose. Um, So thank you for making time to be here with me. I really appreciate it. I know it's created lots of value for um, people who I'm trying to help see that there is a way to, you know, get out from underneath it. So many people I talk to feel like there's no hope for them. So I mostly want people to know Mm. not only is there hope, there's pragmatic hope. There's, you can do this and there's ways that you can do that. And that's why I try to focus on strategies. And I know they don't apply to everybody, but I want people to see this can be done you might actually enjoy it once you start doing it and that there's a better life out there, the one that, you know, you wanted and you deserve to have. So thank you for contributing to that conversation. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Um, thank you. Okay. Well, we'll wrap up and um, <clears throat> until next time. Thank you.